and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Always trying new innovations with the intro. Uh, that was very um, something. Yeah, it was. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, yeah, an unbelievably nice day today. It is. Really, uh, it's a uh, shame to be sitting inside doing a beer podcast. Yeah. Because it won't last. We got one of those amazing fall days, kind of uh, bluish light slanting through the few remaining leaves along the trees. Yeah, and what's interesting is the last couple of days were actually kind of foggy and, in fact, smoky. The campfire, the one that destroyed Paradise, California, uh, the smoke traveled all the way up. Um, into the Portland area, and we had an air quality advisory yesterday, but that seems to have cleared itself up today. Yeah, I heard about that. I couldn't, it didn't seem very smoky to me, honestly. Uh, it, it was less so yesterday, but two days ago it really was. You, mm. uh, you probably weren't outside. It was pretty noticeable. Um, but it kind of felt a little like. <laughs> and someone. Okay, well. Uh, that was the UPS guy. <laughs> Sorry, all. So uh, this is one of the few times, however, that uh, the UPS guy wasn't bringing either beer or some kind of brewery-related swag for you, which I'm disappointed because I was hoping that I could I could uh, uh, cash in on the free beer. But no, it wasn't that. Uh, Sorry. But because we are a low-quality podcast, we'll just keep that in the pot. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we were talking about the smoke. Verisimilitude. Uh, Verisimilitude. Yeah. Uh, the so, rhythms of life here in Portland. That's right. That's right. Lest you think that this is in any way a professional podcast, <laughs> now you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is the Beer Vana Podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, the author of Secrets of Master Brewers, the Beer Bible, and now available for pre-order, The Widmer Way. You can find him blogging at Beer Vana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. You can find him tweeting at Beeronomics. And are you doing anything interesting you want to plug? No. All right. <laughs> you mean, you mean work-wise? <laughs> I don't know. In life? Uh, uh, no. I'm doing like research on things about like social security and stuff. And I'm off into the weeds in terms of research. Nothing to do with beer and um, yeah, not very sexy. Well, social security is important. The more people have, the more beer they can buy. See, that's how you tie things in. That's you how go. you do wow. it right there. See, you're the pro. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a beautiful day in Portland, not smoky. We'll get to the smoke in a bit when we get to the uh, news. Um, but today we have kind of a fun uh, podcast, which is kind of a, both a podcast and a prequel podcast to our next podcast. <laughs> the same podcast line. So three months ago, the Benedictine monks of Maine... At, in, uh, take two. All right, uh, producer, edit this out. <laughs> Three months ago, the Benedictine monks of Mount Angel Abbey opened a brewery here in Oregon. In our next podcast, we're going to sit down with Father Martin to learn about that fascinating project. Uh, to ready ourselves, though, we thought it would be wise to consider monastic brewing more broadly. Monks have been making beer for at least 1,500 years, and we're at the forefront of, forefront of two key innovations. Today, monastic brewings compete alongside regular commercial brewer, breweries, but have a very different mission in selling beer. Maybe we should just not podcast today. There's nothing's going right. More on that soon, but first, the news. Our first item is... Uh Unsettling news, and Patrick uh, intimated about it earlier, that devastating campfire in Northern California uh, recently caused Sierra Nevada to temporarily shut down. 
Um, they've set up a relief fund for the victims of the fire, and you can find information about that at their website, SierraNevada.com. Yeah, the town of Paradise that was destroyed is right next to Chico, where Sierra Nevada is located. Yeah, there was a, a tweet or something went out that showed a picture of the fire burning behind the brewery, and it was, you know, you could see, there was a picture of the brewery in the foreground, and you could see the fire burning on the horizon, so it was very close. Yeah, it's pretty horrific, and the fact that we're getting significant air quality issues all the way up here in Portland is testament to the size and scope of that fire. Yeah, and for people who don't know, we're probably 500 miles away from there. Yeah, four to 500 miles, I guess. So... That's far. Yeah. Uh, so um, good for Sierra Nevada and uh, best wishes. The other thing I heard is that pretty much all the school districts in the whole San Francisco Bay Area are closed today because of air quality issues, yeah. uh, which we faced earlier um, in the summer. So, uh, Second news item, the man who created Blue Moon Belgian White for Coors, his name is Keith uh, either Villa or Villa, depending on how he pronounces it. Do you know? I do not. Okay, left the company earlier this year to start a fascinating new project. He announced the launch of his new company, Seria, again, I don't know exactly how you pronounce that, which uh, will make a product that tastes like his famous wit beer. The twist is the new product's active ingredient comes from cannabis, though the way it is designed to function is very similar to alcohol. According to the press release, it will contain a precise 5 milligram dose of fast-acting THC with a similar onset time as alcohol. So designed to get you buzzed. Yeah. A different kind of buzz. And if people uh, <clears throat> are not so familiar, five milligrams is a very modest dose. It's like uh, at the bottom threshold of, of uh, feeling it. So you could have a couple of these and um, be, be relatively normal. And it's, I think, designed in that way to be like a beer. Yeah. These days with, I don't know what they call it, extraction processes, right? With like the CO2 extraction, you can just isolate the THC and the CBD and then all the terpenes, you can remove them. So I imagine that you're getting just the pure little THC. They probably want the terpenes in for flavor and aroma, I'm guessing. Maybe. You could, or you could add them back in. But yeah. what I'm fascinated with, and there's no info, is how you make it fast-acting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. Because yeah, normally when you ingest it, it takes a while, right? This seems like a little bit of a game, chamber, game changer uh, because edibles take so long right. to you know, go into the bloodstream and they're often very strong. So one of the, you know, one of the, the ways that beer has an advantage over THC is, uh, you commit to fairly substantial consciousness alteration if you go for a, <laughs> if you go for the cannabis. Uh, right. so, you know, you can have a couple of beers and drive home from a pub and, you know, you're fine. Uh, so this, I guess is a, it takes a beer person to try to bring that quality of, uh, sessionability to yeah. the cannabis world. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we'll see. Do you, uh, do you know where this company is located? I think it's in Colorado. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Obviously, one of the states that is legalized recreational. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right, next item. Naturally, of course, we have. It's a, <laughs> a beer podcast. We have to talk about another uh, acquisition. Brooklyn's Six Point Brewery has been acquired by Artisanal Brewing Ventures, the collective created when Victory and Southern Tier merged recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Six Point has a strong brand, uh, which you may have seen. Um, we get, we actually, they distribute all the way out here. Yeah, so, I see it uh, in the stores. Yeah. Um, and they have that great location in Brooklyn. Uh, but it's had real trouble recently, falling from 74,000 barrels in 2016 to an expected 55,000 barrels this year. Yeah, the fact that they're at 55,000 barrels and I see it in stores here is really, really surprised me. I didn't realize they were, I thought they had grown much bigger than this. Me too. And I bet... Uh, uh, when I when I saw this news, I thought this is exactly the kind of brewery that 
um, I bet is becoming a target for people. It's underperforming, so you're going to get kind of a fire sale price on it. Right. But it's got a ton of upside. So with a little bit of uh, oomph and muscle, uh, you can probably you know flip it and really get a return on your investment. Yeah. So I think it's it's not surprising to me at all that it got picked up. Uh, okay, so finally, a little insider baseball. Rocked the Brewers Association recently. <laughs> okay, so I'm just reading Jeff's words. Uh, the trade organization is considering a change in the definition of membership that would allow Boston beer to remain a member despite the fact that the, <laughs> that the volume of actual beer they make is fallen below 50% of their total output. According to the current definition, member breweries must be traditional, which means that the majority of their production must be beer. The products in Boston beers, cider, alcoholic seltzer, and non-alcoholic tea, uh, sorry, and alcoholic teas divisions now constitute the bulk of sales. Yes. So Boston beer is really now a beverage company, and the growth areas that they've found is in these uh, malt beverages, right, that are in uh, and ciders. Right, and their beer volume continues to drop, so those grow beer volume drops and and now they've they've they found themselves upside down in terms of what they make but boston beer has a long history it's a long, it's one of the earlier pioneer earliest pioneers of craft beer long history with the brew association so yeah what, what so we're going to talk a little bit about the politics of it because we have a nice question coming down the pike later okay. we'll, uh, we'll solve it for now then but i will say i put a i put this out uh when the news came out and at least three i'm trying to think uh i know three breweries offhand who said that were the Brewers Association to do this, uh, they would probably opt out. So it's quite controversial. And I heard later that the Brewers Association and sort of damage control sent uh, a survey out to members to find out how offended they'd be by this. Yeah, I mean, at some point you have to decide what you are as the Brewers Association. Are you an organization that is a trade organization that's there to promote craft beer? And if so... Uh, having a company that, that makes uh, alcohol pops and other, and other interesting and another thing sundry uh, uh, is starting to potentially um, drive your mission elsewhere, right? It's, it has has the potential to move move the needle somewhere else. Um, yeah, that's right. So I can definitely see. I can understand why some members might be uh, concerned. Totally. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to the main topic. Yeah. Shall we? All right. So. Uh, uh, the main topic today is uh, monastic ales. Yes. And I'll be upfront and say that I know <clears throat> virtually nothing about monastic ales. So I'm looking forward to this segment. I'm looking forward to you uh, uh, educating me as long, uh, along with everybody else. So you'll have to forgive my naive questions, but um, I'll ask them along the way. Uh, and I'll also admit that I tend to just kind of think of all things monastic and Belgian in one big basket. Yeah. So we can talk about the distinctions. That's right. Uh, we, have we, a, we have a monastic beer here that's not Belgian, to, <laughs> to emphasize that point. And there are other Belgian, and there are other Belgian beers that aren't monastic. So. That's right. Uh, but my little mind has little minimal capacity, so I tend to do some <laughs> gross, gross grouping. So I'll hopefully disentangle that in my mind today. All right. All right. So get us started. Yeah. Well, let's let's go into the uh, deep reaches of history because uh, it turns out that monastics are pretty important in brewing history. Okay. Uh, so. Um, if we go back to like the time of Christ uh, and then and then move forward in European brewing, um, beer is a, a domestic chore. It's mainly done as it's homebrew, basically right, for the household consumption. That, that's yeah. right, and that's um, partly because uh, that's how uh, you know it was. It was a most of the stuff we we had not had a large 
commercial enterprise was organized yet. Right. But it was also because it was very difficult to make beer in large quantities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the equipment, we uh, humans had not yet figured out how to make equipment that could make it in large enough quantities to serve large groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so beginning in a, uh, the 6th century, uh, the monastic community started making beer more, uh, more uh, formally. And by the 8th century, uh, there were a ton of them. Mm-hmm. And so monastics at that point... Monasteries are pretty big operations. They had dozens or hundreds of people, so they had to figure out how to make beer on a large scale. So they were the first ones actually to develop um, large metal mash tuns and kettles, especially the kettles, uh, which uh, they needed to in order to make it at volume. So that was kind of a cool thing. They were mm-hmm. the first ones to really make it in large groups. Uh, and later, they would be uh, the first ones to use hops uh, in their beer. Uh, there was uh, the first... Evidence. So hops were used in other things, you know, going back to the, the Greeks and Romans uh, who talked about it. But in eighteen in 822, this guy named Abbot Adelhard, who was at a monastery in Corby, France, mm-hmm. um, wrote about using hops that were grown on the monastery grounds in the beer. So that was the first ever historical recording of uh, hops being used in beer. Interesting. Uh, it didn't actually become, hop, hopped beer didn't become a deal until like the... 1100s. So it was like 300 years before it became a really big commercial thing. So the monks were way ahead of the game on that. Uh, so this was the first use of actual hops. Were there other things used to bitter beer uh, prior to that? Absolutely. Why, that's a fascinating question you ask, Mr. Emerson. Uh, there was a uh, 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 an entire industry that the Catholic Church controlled. So this was in the, the period of the Holy Roman Empire here. Right. And it was known as the Grootrecht, or Gruitrecht, I suppose you'd say. Um, and Gruet is uh, a preparation of herbs and spices uh-huh. that is, can be used in, in uh, uh, beer. And they gave the Catholic Church granted rights to certain people who were Gruters, people who prepared these mm-hmm. to be sold for the manufacture of beer. And they controlled that in commercial brewing, every, everything. Um, like not just at monastery brewing, hmm. the Catholic Church controlled that. So if you were a gruter, you had to have a grootrecht, the right to make groot. Uh-huh. Grootrecht is the groot right. Um, so uh, yes, the Catholic Church was very heavily involved in all of that. Uh, so that's an interesting sidelight, um, which they kind so of so to get away from the groot, the this uh, abbot Adelhard noticed this. Well, like, I think funny little plant growing. In yeah, the I think I think it was unrelated to that. Um, hmm. It was certainly the case that uh, commercial breweries were happy to get out of that whole group thing because it cost them a lot of money. It was it, it functioned as a tax right. uh, because you had to buy it through these these uh, you know Licensing authorized regulation. people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you you know about I that know about this stuff. Sure. <laughs> it's a way to it's a way to bring in revenue. Right. So the Catholic Church wasn't being dumb there. Um, so now there's this other thing. Uh, so that's kind of the background uh, under Charlemagne in. Uh, uh, who took office, who, who became the, the leader of the Holy Roman Empire in eight, year 800. Mm-hmm. Um, mon- monastic brewing, mona- monasteries and monastic brewing really spread. And uh, under his after his reign, there were something like 600 uh, monasteries making beer. So let me stop and ask you a question. The, the original, uh, did monasteries start growing, uh, uh, brewing beer for their own consumption, just for uh, for pleasure? Did they... Do it as a commercial enterprise, or was there something sacramental about beer in the monasteries? 
you're really on your game today. These are perfect questions. <laughs> Funny you should ask, Patrick. <laughs> uh, it turns out uh, the Benedictine order, which was founded uh, in the 6th century, uh-huh. uh, adopted this thing called the Rule of uh, St. Benedict. Okay. And it governed the monastery practices at all Benedictine abbeys. Okay. And it stipulated two things that were important in the development of beer in monasteries. One is that uh, the monasteries had to be self-sufficient, so they wouldn't get any money from the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, so that means they had to somehow have commerce. Going. Find a way, yeah, to yeah. sell stuff. Okay. They had to sell stuff. Uh, the other thing is they had to welcome uh, people who were interested in visiting the monastery. Okay. And they had to have this kind of outreach, which is both of these things are uh, were not uh, characteristic of other orders right. uh, at the time or even, I think, now. So... Uh, during this period of time, you know, at, at uh, in the from that point and hundreds of years on, uh, there were monasteries scattered over Europe, and some of them were in wine growing regions, but some of them were in beer growing regions. Mm-hmm. And the ones in the beer growing regions uh, saw beer as an excellent way to fulfill a couple of these things. Right, you can uh, uh, be self sufficient by selling beer, which mm-hmm. is a great thing, and also it's it's a nice way to welcome people when they come to the monastery. Right. So they did, in fact, start growing their own grain, malting their own grain, and then later uh, their own hops on the on the grounds. And probably, although this is not really super well documented, um, the herbs and, and spices and stuff that would go into the right everything they would need right there. Right. So yeah, that was a big a big part of the whole process. But it generally was not sacramental then. They stick stuck to the wine for. Yes, it was not sacramental. That's right. right. Uh, in the sense of like communion and all that, yeah, yeah, no, no, it was not sacramental. Uh, so the Benedictine started this. How um, I know there are a lot of t- different orders, but how big is the Benedictine order in the grand scheme of things? Boy, that's a good question. I'm not totally sure about that one. Uh, I'm to... not a Catholic scholar, so uh, <laughs> we, we we wander into an area of my not expertise. Uh, I'll ask you about Buddhism next. Yeah, that one I can tell you about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Galugpa order is the biggest uh, order in Tibetan Buddhism. That I can tell you. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did they brew beer? <laughs> they don't. Although the Tibetans do, and sometime we're going to have to make some chong and see what that's all about. But we're getting way off track here. Yeah, and I'm not sure we call that beer, but you can't. We'll, we'll have that argument later. Yeah, maybe we would call that beer. That's malted barley. Okay. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about how um, the tradition came to be associated with Belgium. Okay, good. Uh, But we have three beers here, and I wonder if we should be drinking some of these while we, we talk. We should probably get started, yeah. You have a preference on any of these? I don't think it matters. Uh, narratively, it doesn't matter. Uh, do we have a... Well, let's start with one of the, one of the two Belgians. Yeah, that's what I going to say. Let's start in Belgium, then we can... Uh, let's do the, the... Actually, no. That's a... A very good choice because this is the oldest of the Trappists. That's see, that's what I'm thinking. You're right on the money. Yeah, we got it. Keep right. it that so Patrick points to the uh, uh, the West Mall glass. Cheers. I'm gonna let you do this while I talk. Okay. So West Mall is uh, there are two, three, four, five, six classic uh, Belgian Trappist monasteries. Mm-hmm. And uh, Westmall is the, the by far the oldest in terms of brewing. Their brewing goes all the way back to the 1830s, 
which a little bit of history here. Uh, the reason there's so many brewing, there's so much brewing in Belgium and and not other parts of the the world uh, in uh, or the French-speaking world, not so much in France, is because during the French Revolution, uh, all the monasteries got sacked. And uh, so uh, in France, they didn't get rebuilt, but Belgium was founded in 1830. So following the, the foundation of Belgium in 1830, monasteries came back. And because they had historically brewed there, many of them started brewing. And among those that started brewing after Belgium was founded, uh, West Malls is... Um, continues to be one of the, the breweries still making the beer. So this beer is their double, and it is a beer that goes back certainly to the 19th century. Uh, hard to say exactly how long it it was made uh, in, in in roughly this form before mm-hmm. the you know the late the late 19th century, but by the early part of the 20th century, probably uh, as a consequence of World War One. The grain rationing and other problems, um, they started to have a little bit of difficulty with it, and it got reformulated in the twenties. Okay, uh, and this so this beer probably uh, is nearly a hundred years old, and in roughly a similar kind of, uh, you know, it, I'm sure it's made differently. I'm sure it's made from different things, but the the inspiration, the, the sort of lineage of this beer is is probably quite Goes back similar. about hundred years. By the way, I just wanted, I just wanted to point out because uh, we have this little logo now for craft independent craft beer that you can you can stick on your bottles now well there's this little logo on the back of the west mall that's that says authentic trappist product yeah we're going to get to why that's on there there's <laughs> okay. a really important reason okay good uh just putting that out since i have the bottle in my hand so um so brown beers until uh until actually west mall introduced their triple mm-hmm. were ubiquitous in belgium right you couldn't find anything but brown uh, brown and ombre yeah a- amber beers no no pale beers so these would have been totally typical. And back in the day... And this uh, is very deep brown. Yeah. these uh, This is a gorgeous beer. These these doubles are often really... Doubles and, and quadruples. Are a a tiny hint of red, but mostly brown. Very they're, and lush they're, head. They're dark, but they're brown. They're not black like a porter. Right. It's really cool how they, they just don't... They have a deep color, but not a black color. It's mm-hmm. nice. Uh... Historically, they would have gotten these by really long boils, uh, mm-hmm. you know, eight to eighteen-hour boils. Wow! Um, so, and that was totally bog standard, typical through most of uh, the north part of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ger- uh, I'm sorry, Dutch-speaking, Flemish-speaking Belgium. Right. That's that was the way they made the beer. Mm. So this is the. Did we say what this is? The West Mall Double? Yeah, you said it's a West Mall Double. Tell, uh, tell me what I should be tasting here. Doubles are interesting beers. Um, they are, I would say, one of those beers that inspire very few people. Mm-hmm. They are malty and yeah. can often just kind of fade away. They have their main characteristic is alcohol strength. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're among the hardest beers to make well in the world. Because you're dealing with all soft flavors, nothing really spiky to get things moving. So you really have to, in order for it to be both rich and creamy and yeah. full of nice malt character, but also and then a very hint of a little hint of sour. You don't want it to. Mostly these things just get too flabby, mm-hmm. and then they don't they finish gross, and you don't want very much of them. And, right. Um, uh, so what do you 
No, knowing all that, what do you think of this one? Mm. Well, uh, in terms of those characteristics, fantastic because it has a really nice mouthfeel. It has very good grain notes, but finishes nice and sharp. It just has just enough of a sort of sour snap to kind of cleanse your palate and want give you that moorish feeling. Uh, the flavor profile is very subtle. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, that's the thing with these doubles. Yeah, it's we're grainy, actually a, a tiny bit of spice, maybe. With a couple of doubles here. Yeah, another challenge with these beers is uh, the because they're ales, mm -hmm. you get a fair amount of fruitiness from the the yeast, which will often enhance that that sweetness and the heaviness and all of that. So yeah, uh, this one expresses very little of that at least so far. It totally does, and I think that's I think that's right. I think because they're 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 uh, they're triple, which is much more famous, is uh, also uh, doesn't have a you know a massive amount of yeast character. It's a subdued yeast character, and I think it's because they ferment a little bit cooler than most of the Trappists. Mm -hmm. uh, if we had a West Vlederen here, West Vlederen uh, uses the same yeast as this monastery. They uh -huh. get their yeast from Westmall. Uh, I think Westmall lets their yeast rise up to like the mid, below the, mid, the low to mid seventies, uh, mm -hmm. which is not that hot for uh, uh, an ale yeast. No. But at West Vlederen, they let it really run, and it'll get up to like the low to mid eighties, uh -huh. and it pops much more character, a lot of more phenolic, like right, really quite a bit of yeast character. So yeah, uh, in, the, in that case, you call this maybe uh, more refined. It's a very, it's a very subtle flavor profile, but it's um, it's really nice. Yeah, I get, <clears throat> I get a nice dry cocoa kind of malting. Mm. It's uh, yeah, that's a good, a good, a good descriptor. It's not so biscuity. It's more, uh, it's it, that probably also is a little bit of the uh, the sour bitter that kind of interacts with the malt. Yeah, it's a nice beer. It's a uh, none of these beers are what you'd call Moorish, but um, it's drink. You know, it's it's a kind of beer that you. Would enjoy drinking. Well, it's a seven percent beer, but it's yeah, it, it doesn't taste like it, uh, and um, as I say, it finishes really clean on your on your mm -hmm. tongue, and so yeah, you uh, could drink this bottle and not not you, feel like you could, you could drink this way too fast. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, is this sort of a, a, a typical characteristic beer? This brown um, uh, sort of n neutral presentation of. Uh, monastic beers dating back to the 1800s? Yeah, the uh, classic uh, Belgian beers would be would have been amber or, or, or dark, and I think the monastic breweries started to focus on the more alcoholic beers, the mm -hmm. more specialty beers, because they were, they're, they're working with that rule of St. Benedict, so they right. needed to uh, create money for the brewery, so right. they were selling them to the the village that they lived in, and so they wanted to make something special that people would come for. Mm -hmm. uh, so strength is a characteristic that was, uh, uh, it seems like, was a hallmark of these breweries pretty early on. Mm -hmm. It was not necessarily characteristic of Belgian breweries typically at the time. Okay. Uh, so that this double word that we have means it had uh, a double, the, the grist was double strong, or in this case, it actually probably meant that it was undiluted. Um, we don't get, need to get really deeply into the weeds here, but Belgian... Well, that's, actually, that's a very good point because I've never actually asked that question before, where the terms double, triple came from. Yeah. Well, uh, these are classic terms mm -hmm. uh, that, that 
are not unique to Belgium, and they mean uh, double grist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, double size. The, the the grist is twice as big, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes they they mean that it's undiluted. So uh, we've talked about party guile right. brewing, and this is how they did did it in in uh, Belgium. They Belgium they would draw successive mashes, right. So the first one would be quite a bit stronger or double du- double strength. I see. And, and then the next one, yeah, would and they would get the, weaker and weaker. Right. Um, so that's really what it refers to in triple. Again, the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, just stronger beers. So these these would have been a hallmark of when you see that double and, and other other beer styles in in uh, Belgium would do this. There was a beer style called Gerst, mm-hmm. and there was a double Gerst. Mm-hmm. So there were other. Other beer styles that had double, so it would have been familiar okay. to people. But basically, when you're when you're seeing the uh, the term double and triple on a Belgian beer, that's that's a uh, a label that indicates strength, not necessarily style. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and it's a fascinating wrinkle that uh, now we think of doubles as brown and triples as pale, and yes. that has to do entirely with Westmall. Okay. <laughs> uh, Westmall. Everybody was making dark beers when Westmall introduced uh, triple in the the 30s. Uh-huh. Uh, there was one, arguably one other beer that might have predated it. And that would have been the first pale triple, mm-hmm. but um, that was the moment that they started to come along. And and Westmalls was such a wild uh, success uh, that it it inspired other breweries to start making these these strong. Uh, pale beers, uh-huh. and I, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but there's another brewery not very far away uh, that we kn- that we know now, uh, Duval, right? Uh, which was at that time also a brown beer. Uh-huh. It didn't become a pale beer until the '60s. Right. That was after pale beer sh- beer started to become more popular. So what? So actually, what happened was double had no relationship to color at all or triple until Westmall distinguished their double and triple. The double would be the dark one, the traditional, and then the triple was a, a pale beer. And then other people adopted that, and that that's how the styles developed. That's how the names became associated with those. Okay, and just a sort of a question, because I'm really interested in this uh, sort of dual brewing populations here. So in, in, in Belgium at the time, there were monast- monasteries brewing beer, and there were non-monasteries brewing beer. And were the beers distinct, or were they essentially brewing similar beers? Totally similar similar beers. Okay. The thing is, and now let's use that as a uh, way to get to this this seal that you saw. Right. Uh, because the monks had been brewing in Belgium, and this had this tradition of brewing in Belgium uh, since the start of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was it was a known people knew about that, and right. there even hundreds even a couple hundred years ago, or nearly a couple hundred years ago, there was a romance associated with going to a monastery and buying beer that was made by monks. Mm-hmm. And so other people, other commercial breweries throughout the course of Belgian history have of tried course. to associate, exactly, <laughs> as, as you would expect, try to associate themselves with monasteries. Right. So Sanfuyan is a brewery that is uh, people will may be familiar with, a Belgian brewery. And if you look at the label, it says Sanfuyan, so Saint Fuyan. Yep. Uh, looks monastery. It looks like a monas- monastic brewing. Um, if you look at the, the date on it, it has some absurdly early date, like, you know, <laughs> 1412 or something uh-huh. and uh and then if you read the read the text it says at this village or at this site there there had been monks back then uh-huh. so they associate themselves with that right other people did it even more kind of uh Sanfuyen at least is transparent in that it's you know 
inspired by, but not right. not not connected to. But other breweries actually traded on it, and some of them called themselves Trappist beer. They would literally just call themselves Trappist beer. Right. So uh, in 1962, the monks managed to get uh, a law passed that said you have to actually be associated with the Trappist monastery. And then uh, there were a few loopholes, which included people who would associate themselves with the Trappist monastery, but would be nowhere near a Trappist monastery or not right. having a monks make it or involved with it. Right. And so in 85, the, the Trappist got even tighter and said the monastery, the, the, the brewery has to be on the monastery grounds. Right. And then you can get the seal. Otherwise, you can't call it that. Gotcha. So in most cases, the, monas- the monks don't actually do the brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do it West Vlederen, and that's the only one in, in, uh, in Belgium where the monks still do the brewing. Mm-hmm. But in every case, if you go to the actual monastery, you'll find the brewery there. Right. So, and in, in also, <laughs> this is a really important piece and something that we'll get into when we talk to Father Martin in our next podcast. Uh, the connection between the, the revenue that, that the brewery generates and supporting the monastery is direct. So if you buy a, a Chimay or an Orval or a Rochefort, or a West Mall, it's supporting uh-huh. the monastery. Okay. So that's an important thing that people care about. It. And of course, you know, that's another reason why people want to associate themselves with monks because yeah. it looks like it's, you're doing good work, even if you're just really lining your own pockets. Yeah. I always like to do my charitable giving through drinking beer. It's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what have I, have I, have I missed any history here that's important? I don't think so. Um, there are uh, some kind of famous Belgian. We've been, we've been in the, the Belgian tradition here. Right. Uh, so there's some other famous uh, Belgian breweries. So we we talked about Westmall, which is drank. It's the first one. Um, uh, there is uh, West of Lederen, mm-hmm. which is in far western Flanders. Mm-hmm. Rochefort, which we have a bottle of here today. Orval, uh, Chimay, and Akel. And these these breweries kind of all filtered in at different times uh, after uh, uh, West Mall. So West Blood in 1838, Rochefort 1899, Orval uh-huh. 1931, Chimay in the 40s, and Akel in as recently as the 1990s. So these were when they started brewing. But this is the universe of, of monastic breweries in Belgium. This is the that that's it. Yeah. That's it. So that's what I mean. Sorry, term of art. Yes. <laughs> so there are um, there are others that really play on that. Um, there's but that's one. very few. I didn't realize. I yeah. don't know. I just had this idea that there are many that we didn't. We only got a select few imported here. It's no. It's 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 because other breweries really play on that. And I wanted to mention a few. Okay. Um, there's Leff and Triple Carmelite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy Leff here at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It's an ABI product. Yeah. But if you look at it, it's got a you know a happy monk on it and like the, <laughs> the whatever those the windows with the peaks I don't know yeah, kind of rounded peak yeah arch, I, I don't know what you're about I don't yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> go back to my architecture and and triple carmelite was only recently purchased it was brewed by Bostiles which was recently purchased by ABI but also had no connection to the I mean it had a distant connection to the, a carmelite abbey but not really uh, anything recently. Affligam and uh, Grimbergen are two uh, brands you see all over Belgium. Mm-hmm. Really play up their monastic sexiness. Right. Uh, owned by Heineken, no connection <laughs> at all. Okay. So, you, so, so this look, is this. The reason you think this is because there are a lot of breweries that are doing a lot to muddy the waters. I see. Okay. And so why the, the the Trappists are so irritated by it? So let's just say that this once again because it's a very short list. So West Mall, West Vlederen, Rochefort, Orval, 
Chimay, and Akel, you call it? Akel, yeah. Akel. So those, that's it. That's the Belgian monasticals, the, yeah, the, the true Belgian monasticals. There's one other one which we should mention, which is across the border mm-hmm. uh, in, in Holland called mm-hmm. La Trappe, which okay. is, a his, is kind of um, usually included in this, uh, in this, what do you call it, a universe? This, yeah. In, 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 <laughs> in data science, the universe means you've, like if you go and, uh, and collect data from a population, the universe is that you've got it from everybody. Gotcha. So that's, what, that's the term. So it means that you have the entire population of, of, uh, of monastic elves. Yeah, La Trappe, I think people would consider it in, in mm-hmm. the kind of Bel- Belgian, and I'm doing air quotes here, uh, universe, because it's, it's very close to Belgium. In the Low Countries universe. It's in the Low <laughs> Countries, yeah, and, um, the Dutch-speaking uh, parts. So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so that's it. And then, interestingly, we've had some, um, because these beers have been so... so uh, Oh yeah, I'm so, sorry. Sold I... so well. Go ahead. Uh, we've had other monasteries, uh, other Trappists open up that have Trappist designations, and we haven't even gotten into the non-Trappist breweries, and we haven't even left Belgium yet. So, right. um, but but fascinatingly, there's other ones that are now designated as uh, real Trappist things that have that little mark on it that you mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, in Holland, there's one called Zundert, which started in uh, 2013. Uh-huh. Um, in Germany, Stift. Engazel, mm-hmm. uh, which was the first one after the, the Belgians to get going, first one to kind of uh, push into the modern era, mm-hmm. and that's from 2012. There's one called Trefontaine in Italy, uh, which is in 2015, and there is also a Benedictine monastery in uh, Norcia, mm-hmm. which is where uh, St. Benedict was from ah. and so it's a benedictine monast- monastic brewing so that's kind of cool too but hold that thought uh in the united states we actually have a a uh authorized brewery uh trappist brewery which is the spencer brewery which is in massachusetts okay and then the most recent uh which opened or started selling beer this year the monastery all of these monasteries are much older i'm all the dates i've given are when they started brewing right 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 uh, which is mount saint bernard uh, also known as Tint Meadow, mm-hmm. and they started selling beer this year wow. in the UK. So I'm sure you know where Tint Meadow is. I know, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so those have all been added, and we, you know, we've seen this kind of little boom of uh, uh, of monastic brewing that really tracks very closely with uh, craft brewing. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. Um, let's move on to the next beer. This is the Rochefort. Did I pronounce that correct? Lee? Yeah, that's how. That's uh, how I think you pronounce it. Is it in the French-speaking part? It is. It's in the, the far south of uh, Belgium. I, I, the two breweries. Uh, well, actually, I visited three monast- monastery breweries: uh, West Vlederen, Orval, and Rochefort. But I only got to t- tour two of them, mm-hmm. uh, and I toured uh, Orval and uh, uh, Westmall in. Um, one day because they're so close together, so you can you can bomb down there and see them. And uh, West, uh, I'm sorry, Rochefort it has the prettiest brew house on the planet. And I think right? I'm probably when you when you ask me for the photo as you always do to go with this, I I think I'm certainly going to give you the photo of their brew house. It is okay. So you should have the eye candy when you get this podcast. That's right. Uh, this is the Ro- uh, Trappist Rochefort. Uh, six, six. 
There you go. So tell me why six. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you'll notice uh, many of these breweries will have a number mm -hmm. associated with their uh, uh, their beer, and that relates to the Belgian degree system, mm -hmm. which is for brewer. All the home brewers out there are going to immediately understand this, and it's so simple and so cool that it's super cool. So there's the 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 uh, uh, the standard. Uh, what is it called? The not the Plato system, but the other one. The tens, you know, like ten fifty or whatever. Oh yeah, I know uh, the system. <laughs> standard gravity, or I can't remember. I'm sorry. Original gravity. Yeah, the, well, the gravity readings, but I don't know what. It's uh, anyway. I, I apologize. Please send me your hateful emails. Uh, anyway, w the way you get a degree system we're, is we're old. My uh, brain's not working. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, you uh, you correspond. The, the the degree system corresponds to the the tens. So if it's if the this beer is a six degree, mm -hmm. so we can assume that it's somewhere around ten sixty. Okay. So if the if the original gravity for a beer was ten eighty, that would be their eight degree beer, uh, and so on. So when you see this, um, if you know gravity, you can kind of track what that means. Specific gravity. Specific. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was a little quick Google there. <laughs> thank you. It's really bad. I packed my brain full of all the stuff I could think of. Yeah, you're doing like, good. You're doing really good. <laughs> Everything else is, ah, I forgot by, that stuff. By, by the way, actually, uh, uh, you, you deserve a lot of credit because um, people can't see this, but the, the notes he's working off of um, to talk about all this stuff are incredibly minimal. Uh, and so all of this stuff is from the recesses of your, your brain, which is just completely astounds me because my brain couldn't couldn't handle all this stuff maybe maybe it's true i have economic stuff in my brain like i think you, you do have, that's the thing like the, stuff. you know we we put the stuff in there we, we we focus on the stuff that's important so i i can tell you about the belgian degree system but where i parked my car <laughs> no idea <laughs> anyway so so cheers to you because uh well thank uh, you yeah that's it's impressive it's all coming from that it's all extemporaneously coming from your brain. So I love beer, and uh, writing writing this book was fantastic because I got to learn all this stuff. So, so this one is more of an amber. It is. It, I, I'm surprised to see how light it is. Uh, yeah. I would definitely call it an amber. It's a it's a dark amber, but yeah. uh, nowhere near as dark as the uh, the Westmall. That's right. It's a little bit cloudy. Yeah, that's, yeah. I I chose this one because um, Rochefort is famous for its eight and its ten. Those are its kind of two flagships. And mm -hmm. when I saw that this one was for sale, I thought, ooh, that is super cool. The six is really rare to find. So these are the three beers they make. They only make three beers. Uh, and this is the little and more rare one. And it is still, even though it's a six, it's still 7.5% alcohol. So it's not a little beer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this is superb. It has an amazing nose. Mm -hmm. mm. Super spicy nose. I don't think I've had this before. I think you might have. I might have had the eight before. but Yeah, I bet you haven't. I... I have had the six in Belgium, and that's the only time I've had it. This is staggeringly good. It's incredibly spicy. It is. It's got a really full mouthfeel, very spicy. So this has... Uh, that uh, Rochefort actually includes a tiny bit, and I don't know that they do it on their six, but in their, in their ten, I think they use a tiny sub-recognizable uh, level of coriander. Ah. But you can't actually taste it. It's designed just to enhance some right. of the aromatics. Um, and in any case, the kind of spice you're getting here is not sweet spice. It's it's like uh, peppery. and. That's right. But for some reason, I'm getting kind of like almost a, a vanilla note that mm -hmm. kind of mellows everything out. It's totally vanilla note. Yeah. It's woody. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, if you told me that this was wood aged, I would say, oh, absolutely. Oh, that's so good. Got, again, just enough sour snap to cleanse your palate. As is kind of typical for a Belgian beer, these are bottle conditioned and uh, they pour, they have high volumes of uh, CO2. So I'm guessing around four. So when we were pouring these out, we hadn't talked about it, but we're getting these giant yes. massive heads. <laughs> yeah. uh, this one, this one less. So then, a little uh, bit less, but yeah. it's really effervescent on the tongue. Yeah. Uh, this head diminishes quite, it, it diminished quite more quickly than the, than the uh, West Mall, even though it's only just a little bit more alcohol. Yeah. Oops. <clears throat> My apologies to your glass. You're right. That is that is really good. And it's all yeast. It's all yeast character they're getting out of that. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wow. So this beer uh, was reformulated. And this is one thing I think that's critical. Uh, some people, these are simple beers, you know. Uh, they use a little bit of sugar in the grist, but otherwise just really basic, um, except for Orval, just basic, you know, malt, normal hops, uh, normal process, nothing fancy compared to the kind of phantasmagoria you find in, in Belgium. Nothing right. fancy. So yeah. why do we consider them so good? I think it's because, so this beer uh, was reformulated by the uh, one of the most famous Belgian brewing people, uh, Jean de Klerk, uh, who worked at Leuven. Uh, he was a scientist and a, kind of, and a brewer. He was sort of the, um, oh, uh, Charles Bamford. Bamford, I think that's his name, the guy at uh, Davis, who's sort of the, the oh. godfather of... Yeah. Uh, uh, American brewing scientists. He uh -huh. was he was the 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 Belgian version of that in the fifties, and he helped the brewery reformulate this beer in the nineteen fifties. So it's been made for sixty, uh, approaching seventy years. They've been making this beer, uh -huh. and that means that they have made you know ten ten thousand batches of it or something, uh, thousands and thousands of batches. Right. So they slowly, slowly, slowly refine these beers, and if you make any beer that much. Uh, and you're attentive to what works and what doesn't work, and you make subtle refinements for 70 years, Yeah, you should end up with a pretty good beer. <laughs> you should have dialed it in after maybe 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's really exceptional. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's all spice up front and vanilla in the finish. Mm -hmm. mm. And then a really nice clean finish. And it tastes so wood-aged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You would have thought. I would have thought. Yeah, it's almost like a, like a cognac barrel. Yeah, but very subtle. The the spiciness just reminds me of the spiciness that you get out of uh, spirits. Mm -hmm. Very nice beer. Um. So there are other monasteries besides. Yeah, just Belgians, about to ask. Though. So we've uh, been talking about the Belgians. And oh, we're, we're talking about the um, one last Trappist. one last fun thing. Yeah. St. Bernardus. we got to talk about, before we leave Belgium, St. Bernardus and West Plederen. Okay, please. Uh, St. Bernardus is a, not a monastery brewery, brewery mm -hmm. but they make all these monastery beers. And, uh, I mean monastery-style beers? Or... Yeah, except, fascinating story. Following World War II, the monks of West Plederen decided they didn't want to brew anymore. Ah. So they taught the uh, this... This cheesemaker in Watu, uh -huh. uh, how to make their beer. Okay. They gave them their ingredients. They gave them their yeast. They taught them how to make their beer. So the uh, the uh, six, eight, and twelve 
which uh-huh. were are the really famous beers they taught them how to make and then and then St. Bernard's made other ones and they made them until I think 92 I have my notes somewhere so wait a minute so St. Bernard's is the cheese makers yeah and also now they're much more famous for their beer okay yeah uh, gotcha. so from so from 46 to 92 they made uh, the the beer for West Flattering and when you looked at the label it said West Flattering and if you if from and they people, made it off site they made it at the St. Bernard's site yeah uh-huh. which is in Watu, okay. which is where they grow hops. Right. And then in 92, St. Uh, West Flatter said, we want, we, want, we want to start brewing our own beer. We want it back. <laughs> and uh, and St. Bernardus said, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> so they just changed the name to St. Bernardus uh, on the label. The nice. label is exactly the same, except, and it still even has a little monk on it. Uh-huh. Changed the name back to St. Bernardus, and then the monks at West Flatter started brewing their own beer. So in a in a weird way, and then this, the monks, or the guys at St. Bernard's kind of had to, you know, re-teach the monks. Re-teach the monks, because <laughs> they, they were the, now the keepers, and they had, the, they had the, the yeast and all that stuff. Right. So uh, the, so St. Bernard's gets an asterisk in the, in the whole, is it a monastery brewing thing? And they're they're it, not the bad guys in this. They're, they're not the bad guys, and they're interesting in, in, in that they have been making these kind of beers since 1946 and making them very well. One okay. of my very yeah. favorite beers is Potter 6. It, it is spectacular. If you okay. see that, it's kind of rare, kind of hard to find. One of the best beers I ever had. So. That's the St. Bernardus beer. Yeah. And so the St. Bernardus beer is distinct now from the West Veteran beers. They're not making parallel beers. They're making something different. Yeah, they are. And now West Vletteran, interestingly, uses West Mall's yeast. So if you want the original West, <laughs> West Vletteran yeast, yeast, you got to buy St. Saint Bernardus. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yes. All right. The, uh, some, good, some good insights. You can, yeah, yeah. You can regale your friends with these stories. And exactly. Be, be really insufferable at your Thanksgiving uh, table for, yeah. for, for the Americans and Canadians. And the, although Canadian Thanksgiving is some weird time. So. Uh, Right. Okay. So let's let's move on then. So yeah. We, we've so been talking about Belgium, and we've been talking about Trappist. That's right. So there's other monasteries uh, and other monastery breweries elsewhere, and, and including a really nice tradition in Germany. Mm-hmm. When I was in Germany uh, in Franconia, there's a place called Kloster Kreuzberg, mm-hmm. which make a uh, not very good double. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Dunkel. Uh, it's okay. Okay. Uh, they serve, but it's a gorgeous place to drink and. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the day that I visited, which was kind of late in the game. It was probably late October, early November. Mm-hmm. But it was a sunny day, sort of like we have here, and mm-hmm. it was just packed. They served, in these, they served the beer in these giant stoneware mugs, and it was really nice. cool, and you can get some sausage, and it's, it's a nice, it's a really cool place. Um, and then uh, there is a much more famous one. In fact, probably, in some ways, the most famous monastery brewery in the world is, is Kloster Ondex, which mm-hmm. is just near... Munich, and which is certainly in terms of uh, tourism, uh, you know, so many people has, have visited Ondex because it's got this famous monastery that's really gorgeous and it's near this huge population center. Yeah, and, when I was uh, in Munich, I had it was on the sort of you kept seeing it in the tourist brochures <laughs> and stuff. It's like one of the things you can do yeah. from Munich is go to Ondex. And it was one of the breweries I didn't go to because uh, on my visit to Munich, they were the brewery was closed. They were refurbishing the brewery. And so I was like, well, there's really no reason for me to go down there. So it's one of the few uh, incredibly famous breweries that's on my wish list that I have not seen. So I'm hoping to go back and, and see Ondex. And, but you have brought us an Ondex from the beer store, not from Germany. Uh, it says since 1455. Uh, and what we have is a, um, 
uh, Doppelbach Dunkel. There you go. And I don't I don't know so much about this beer or that fourteen fifty five thing. Uh, yeah. But um, but I loved the idea that it uh, it was a, a, a Doppelbach because that's especially associated with monks. So that seemed great. Benedictine. It says. At, yeah, it's a Benedictine uh, monastery, and in fact, uh, there was a there was a years ago, maybe two decades ago, Mount Angel Abbey Benedictine Brewery that we're going to talk about next time, right? Had a uh, little uh, promotion thing where they had on decks make a beer, which they sold at the Mount Angel Abbey or at the, the Mount Angel Oktoberfest. Oh, nice. Yeah, which so in in Mount uh, Angel, Oregon, a special beer. Yeah. There's a spec. There's every year. There's Mount Angel is this German-founded town, uh, and every year they have an Oktoberfest. is a big deal, and because Ondex is a famous Benedictine brewery, mm-hmm. Mount Angel contacted them and said, "Why don't we do a beer and we'll sell it at the Oktoberfest?" Nice. So there's this connection between uh, Ondex and and the brewery we're going to talk to next. So that'll be fun. All right. And here we have a Doppelbach, which is one of the strongest German beers, and yet is. No stronger than either of these two Belgian beers we had, which are among the weakest beers these Belgian <laughs> monastic brewers make. Yeah, this is 7.1. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's quite a... <laughs> that's so German. Yeah. Look at that thing. That <laughs> is absolutely perfectly clear. clear. Man. Yeah. It's just gorgeously clear. So it's dark. Uh, it's brown, but it's a reddish. Oh, yeah. mine. Yours looks more brown because you have a thinner... A thinner glass. I'm in a tulip glass, and it's thicker, and it's definitely it pops a lot more red. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm kind of colorblind, so I have to rely on others to tell me about. Red. Well, but yours is not. That's what's funny is that it takes a little bit more liquid to. Oh yeah, to I can see the red in yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very. Um, smells it's, smells German, doesn't very, it? Yeah. Total malt in the in the nose. Very roasty, malty nose. Hmm. It actually smells wonderful. Um, well, that's a fall beer, if you pretty yeah. It smells like fall. That's it. A, does, yeah. I, I, I smelled that and thought, mm. Mm, I want my turkey and my perfect for the season. Yeah, my this mashed is, potatoes. This is a Thanksgiving beer. No, you're right. Has an amazing head too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, it's thick and totally creamy. Tiny little bubbles. Mm. Yeah, there's a little roast malt back there. Uh, um, yeah. Really healthy dose of roast malt on the nose, and then, boy, I will, I will tell you the uh, alcohol is incredibly well concealed. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. You could you could have this at Thanksgiving and be rolling before you know it. Yeah, you totally could. The the uh, uh, everything here is the malt. It's just a really the presentation is lovely malt. You just you can drink a stein of this and be on the floor. So Ondex is much more famous for their their Helles and uh, their Weiss beer. Uh, so traditional German style traditional beers. Traditional German style beers. Okay, yeah. that was what, one of my next question. And that's you know um, that's I, I think as we look forward, it, it's interesting. These other breweries that I mentioned, these other Trappist breweries, have really followed the Belgian tradition mm-hmm. and made beers that are like Belgian beers. And we're going to we're going to talk to Father Martin about his inspiration for his beers, which are Belgian inflected but already starting to to bend. In an Oregon direction, right? So I think, I think it'll be interesting to see. You know, one thing about uh, monastery brewing is it, it, 
historically, as we talked about, they would have grown everything on the, on the grounds mm -hmm. and it would have been like a, a, you know, local would have been a given. Of course it would have been local. It's, it would have been hyper-local. And even in the commercial era, uh, they might have, they might have been having them, uh, barley malted off site, but you know, it still would have expressed a lot of the terroir and certainly the, the brewing traditions of wherever they were. Right. So the fact that we now have this, these new breweries, uh, Spencer, um, the one in the UK, uh, Stift Ingesell, which is in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, or is it, I think it's, that may actually be in Austria. I may have wrote, I wrote that down by memory. It may actually be in Austria. <laughs> Sorry. It's in a Wait, German I'm just, language. I'm just <laughs> pumping up your memory. You can't, I know. You can't make mistakes now. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up, man. I just tell stories well. Uh, in any case, it's in a German language country, a lager country. Certainly not a place where you would buy Belgian beer, and yet right. they're making they're making beer in the Belgian tradition. Yeah. And I wonder if these these beers are going to be. I wonder. We think of Ab Abbey Ales as being uh, Belgian because the Belgians have been so dominant in this space for so many decades, but uh, you know, as as Ondex and Kreuzberg and uh, other breweries illustrate there's no reason to think that it has to be that way uh, so right. i think it'll be interesting and, if, and in fact at uh at mount angel they recently brewed a hellas which they're super loving and which got a big response so uh nice. they their 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 kind of flagship is called black habit which is uh sort of like a double um mm -hmm. sort of inspired by the belgian tradition and then then they have this hellas so which is Maybe a wink to uh, to Ondex. Who knows? Yeah. What about the Hellas? Uh, let me go back to Belgium for a second because uh, has the um, is there sort of a, a, a I don't even know how to ask this question. You talked about the the breweries that kind of um, sort of uh, uh, play up the monastic aspect of their beer without actually being monastic beer. But is there kind of a, a uh, a division now between monastic t style beers and other beers like you know saison saison dupont and flanders reds and thing and um uh um yeah <laughs> and and other belgian style beers no they're they're mostly except orval we didn't mm -hmm. mention orval orval is its own weird thing mm -hmm. um but these other breweries make beer that we would that we would now call roughly in the 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 Abbey spectrum, the double, triple thing. They don't always call them doubles and triples. You know, uh, Rochefort calls theirs has the degree system. And, mm -hmm. um, but no, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're wrecking in this category that the beers that we're drinking today, doubles, triples, that kind of stuff. What I mean is that, uh, there's, there's, uh, monastic brewers in Belgium and non-monastic brewers in Belgium and the non-monastic brewers in Belgium that don't, uh, try to pass themselves off as, as uh, monastic style beers, uh, do other things. And, and, and so I guess what I'm asking is, I guess the better way to ask the question is that these monasteries basically make this small lineup of beers, the characteristic of their own monastery, their own brewery, and uh, um, don't try to, to do these other styles and like Saisons and Flanders Reds and you know what I'm saying? So the distraction was I was humiliated by my 
my Austria. Oh, you got to go back to that. So, and, what, and the answer is Austria. Okay, so it's Austria. <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a, a neuron tickle. Was like, wait, I think that's Austria, even though I haven't <laughs> written down in my notes it's Germany. So anyway, it's Austria. So okay, Stift Stift Ingelzell. Yeah, in Austria. Okay. I was really pretty sure it was Austria there that's for a good. second. You sorry, might, yeah, sorry, everybody, uh, old brain. Okay, one more time. The you're talking about. Whether okay, so I guess the be, here's the the third attempt in the best way yes, to think of it. As sorry, a, as a, I, you my full as a consumer, as I was saying, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I tend to just lump everything Belgian together. It's like oh, Belgian beer, right? And it's like you know, it's sour. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So there's <laughs> but, this whole related category of beers that we call Abbey ales, right? Uh, which there are a lot of examples of. Um, Saint Bernardus would be thrown in this category of an Abbey ale. It's not a Trappist brewery. It's not a monastery brewery, right? But they, they, they make them in the, the, this tradition. So okay. they don't make saisons. They don't make uh, sour beers. They don't make that stuff. When you talk about Abbey Ales, you're talking about doubles, triples, quadruples, okay. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's right. That's, uh, All right. So that's a good way to dis- distinguish. So these are Abbey Ales. Yeah. And we've been talking about monastic brewing. But right. there is, when you talk about an Abbey Ale, many, many sure. Americans make uh, yeah. you know, an Abbey Double or something in their not trying to say that they're brewing, they're monastic breweries. They're gotcha. just in, in the tradition of uh, a West Mall or a Rochefort. Okay, I see. All right, that helps me uh, make the distinction. And it's funny that n- none of them say, we're making an Abbey um, Doppelbach, you know. <laughs> they could. Yeah. In fact, I mean, the, the original Doppelbach was an Abbey beer. It was brewed in a monastery, and it was... Anyway, that's yeah. a whole different story, but... Well, these are three exceptional beers. Uh, really delightful. Yeah, they are. This is all a bit different. That's a a double box nice. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Okay. Anything else before we we move on about monastic brewing? I mean, I think that will set it up. We're going to talk with Father Martin about um, some of the characteristic features of Abbey Brewing and what the mission of an Abbey Brewer is or a monastic brewery. I look forward to it. As opposed to a commercial brewery. And um, that's interesting because they don't have, they want to make money, of course, but that's not actually what a monastery is in the business of doing. Right. So that's right. fun. And I hope you'll bring your economist mind and ask him some interesting questions. That's the only mind I have left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the mailbag. Uh, let's do it. Uh, we actually have a uh, mailbag this week. So thank you very much for chiming in, those uh, are a few listeners. Um, who do. So uh, I guess I'll start with Jeff Weiser's uh, question. Uh, Jeff says, bringing back a topic from a week or two ago, uh, but I'd love to hear a dialogue about why, oh yeah, so this is about a news item, why the Brewers Association caters to Sam Adams, bending the rules to keep them given their current craft climate and growth. So just like the news uh, that we talked about in the beginning of the pod, now we're back to the Brewers Association and its relationship with Sam Adams. Yeah. So the history of this, and then I, I, and then you and I can both speculate. But um, the history is that uh, uh, Jim Cook, the founder of Sam Adams, is, mm-hmm. was always a main, uh, he's a founding member and like a big a big part on the board uh, of the uh, Brewers Association. Actually, the Brewers Association wasn't founded until 20, 20, uh, 2005, but there were precursor organizations that he right. was involved with. Right. Um, so he was involved with writing the definitions that said, um, you know, it's a uh, small, independent and traditional. Uh-huh. Um, so he's a godfather. So he's a godfather. Um, and you know, kind of famously, uh, at some point they passed the, at one point the, the definition for small was under two, 2 million barrels. Right. And they passed 2 million barrels. 
And so they changed the rule. And Boston it up Brewing to, did. Yeah, Boston Brewing did. So they, they bumped it up to 6 million barrels. Right. And, um, uh, and now, you know, it looks like there might be another change which would affect only one brewery. And that, that 6 million barrel thing affected only one brewery. No one else is even close to 2 million barrels. Right. So it was uh, not an issue for right. the, for the uh, you know, several thousand members of the, the trade organization. So I, I, actually, I think, I think you can turn the question around because there's a lot of ways in which, especially because I imagine, I, mean, I don't know anything about the Brew Association uh, firsthand at all, um, but I imagine it's still you know, a, a pretty small community, uh, especially amongst the, the originators, the people who have been around forever. And so it's very hard to sort of turn your back on one of the people that uh, got you started and, and was a promoter um, and a very visible and high-profile uh, promoter. Uh, I think uh, a question is, thou, though, that if they're going to make such a change, it's clearly being pushed by Koch himself. Koch. Cook. Cook, sorry. I'm thinking of uh, Stone. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, why... Why does he still need the Brewers Association? Jim and Craig, they're two really big figures in the brewing industry. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it is a fascinating question. And, it, you know, uh, to Jeff's point, what does is, what is the Brewers Association need with, with uh, Boston beer? Um, you know, they, uh, they, they unceremoniously kicked out uh, Widmer and, and Red Hook mm-hmm. back when uh, Widmer and Red Hook probably constituted the same percentage of cra- the craft volume that uh, Boston beer does now right uh, relative to the whole market so you know it's I, I, yeah it's fascinating I don't know I mean I have a lot of troubles with with Jim he uh, back in the early days he was a, a, a contact contract brewer mm-hmm. so he was dictating terms about what's craft brewing when he was himself doing something that was considered you know pretty dubious among actual right. brewers who right. built their own breweries and actually made their own beer Um so yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I think it's a bit of the, from my perspective, it's a bit of the poison fruit. You know, it's the. It is, and I'll go back to my original point uh, at the, when we were doing the news story, which is that at some point you really have to decide who you are and who you represent as an organization. Uh, and if the Brewer Association is really going to try and represent um, uh, independent craft breweries. Uh, then I think they need to stick to their guns and do so because the more you start uh, watering down the definition, the less powerful then you become as an advocacy group. Yeah, it's true, uh, particularly given that the, the the characteristics that now define Boston beer look so much like Anheuser-Busch back in the day. You right. know, it's a, it's a large publicly traded uh, organization that sells all these different products that has national distribution. If you're a, if you're a brewer that makes couple thousand barrels and sells in a local city um you have less in common with boston beer or you you know boston beer might as well be anheuser-busch as yeah. far as you're concerned well i mean i mean the, the the common areas i can see are things like taxes you know everyone's gonna be in favor of uh trying to reduce the tax incidents uh but other things like access to markets and distribution relationships i mean these are things that are quite different if you're boston beer or if you're yeah. little you know little tiny brewery around the corner and boston beer will uh, you know, dictate the priorities of the trade organization in, in fighting for different agenda uh, that you can yeah. only fight for certain things. So what yeah. are you going to fight for? The things that uh, Jim wants or the things that, you know, the, the taproom owner wants, which yeah. is really kind of on the... Precisely on the my point, of, yeah. yeah. Well, well, well stated. So uh, we didn't really provide any answers, but we've sort of uh, provided more questions, um, yeah. I suppose. But yeah, I get back to like, uh, you know, I don't really, at some point, I don't think it makes sense for the... Um, 
Boston Bruin to uh, to continue to try and uh, change the Brew Association to fit its current business model. It's I think it's probably time to be in a better a bigger a bigger person and let it go. <laughs> I would I would think so too. I would say to Jim, <laughs> just like so having written the Widmer Way, I'll tell you uh, when the Widmers were booted from uh, Brewers Association. Jim told Kurt and Rob, oh, we'd always love to have you back. All you have to do is, uh, they, they set the mark at 25%. Uh, mm-hmm. You could have ownership of up to 25% by another company, and, right. and then you're still in good standing. And they said, all you have to do is drop that down to 25%, and you can come back in good standing. Mm-hmm. And if I were the Brewers Association now, I would say to Jim Cook, all you have to do is make 50% of your beer, uh, your, your volume beer, mm-hmm. and you're a member of good standing. Otherwise... <laughs> Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out, buddy. <laughs> but hey, that's a that's a maybe a bitter Portlanders view. Yeah. All right. You you can do the next mailbag. Okay. Um, Nat West, who owns a interesting little cidery here in town that people might be aware of, mm-hmm. uh, asks, "How has the success?" So you're going to say the name of the cidery. Oh, I assumed it was self-evident. Okay. Reverend Nats. Thank you. He'll thank you for that. Yeah, Re- Reverend Nats. Reverend Nats. Perhaps the most famous cidery in America. You're welcome, Nat. Uh, how Certainly ha- the best. If <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. No question. Uh, he asks, how has the success of Sequench Ale affected... So this is um, Dogfish Head's uh, Sour Goza style ale. Okay. Affected the, the slow Goza microtrend. Uh, is there an opportunity for another Goza-like beer to find success? And uh, just one note... And then I'll throw it to you, which is to say that um, the next, uh, <laughs> so uh, the Goza, the Goza, there are a lot of Goza examples out there. But right. after Sequench, the next largest Goza in the country is Sierra Nevada's Otravez, which is their uh, seasonal or uh, year-round Goza, mm-hmm. one of the bigger brands. Uh, Sequench is three sells three times as much as the next biggest one, which is Sierra Nevada. So I would say. That's a, an important contextual piece here. So it's kind of a unicorn. I think it's a unicorn. Kind of like um, Firestone Walker's 80, whatever it is. Two, yeah. One, five. There you go. Five. <laughs> it's like you, you have a one in 10 chance here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could just keep going through all the numbers eventually. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you look, it, it's, it, this is one of those disaggregation problems. Mm-hmm. Goza looks like it's one of the hottest brands. The hottest styles out there, but it's it's just because Sequench is super popular. So it, the growth of the Goza, much like growth growth of Golden Ale, is was you know defined by one one brand. Yeah, um, and I, I I I'm fascinated by Sequench. Uh, it is uh, I think it's a perfect example of how of a theory that I hold, which is don't put an obscure unpronounceable style from a foreign country on your label if you want to sell that to people who who are interested in what well, right. might be otherwise interested in that beer right if they can't pronounce it they won't buy it and if they don't know what it is they won't buy it right so goza is death i think it's like schwarz beer yeah. and some of these other words um it's very difficult to appeal to people that way and sequench doesn't mention goza. doesn't mention that okay. it, it, everything on the label is very kind of it communicates exactly the experience you'll have from the beer. Mm-hmm. And so people see that, they're intrigued by it, they taste it, it tastes exactly like they expect. 
and it's a wonderful, refreshing, lightly tart, lightly fruity, lightly salty beer. It's a wonderful beer, and it's what people expect, and so it's taken off. So I think there's a huge lesson there, but it has nothing to do with Goza. Interesting. Nat is actually has one of the strongest brands. Probably, I will say this without kidding. Nat Nat's brand is probably the strongest brand in cider. Mm-hmm. It is the, the clearest uh, brand. Um, he was the most sophisticated person. I, I mean this nationally. He just has an incredibly impressive brand. So my guess is Nat could have answered this question himself. <laughs> but, um, but we do thank you for the question. Yeah. So uh, long story short, we don't expect the big countrywide tidal wave of Goza's kind of <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't expect so. I think if you were going to try to do a Goza, I wouldn't call it a Goza. Yep. Um, and I think it's a wonderful, refreshing beer, and I would like to see more of that. But yeah. Okay. I'd like to see more Schwarz beers, too. Don't call them Schwarz beers. <laughs> or demand people call them Schwarz beer. Schwarz. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so that's the end of our uh, podcast. Um, uh, going out, I just... Uh, we don't have a beer Sherpa, but we can certainly re- recommend any of these three beers that we tested tasted today: the Westmala uh, Double, the Trap, the Rochefort Six, and the Index uh, Doppelbach uh, are all exceptional beers. And we haven't talked about Orval today. We talked about it in, pa- in, the, yes. in the past pod. Um, arguably, the greatest beer made in the world, made by monks in uh, a monastery in the far southern tip of Belgium. Mm-hmm. If you haven't had it, for God's sakes, what are you doing? Go, so, go find it. Yeah, so add that to the list. You could throw in a West Blederin, uh and uh, maybe even and maybe is, a So One fascinating thing is uh, these beers used to be really common. Like you used to go down to uh, Fred Meyer and find Chimay. Right. I couldn't find a Chimay to save my life. Really? I don't know if that's an Oregon thing or a Chimay thing or what that's all about. But uh, Trends are changing so fast. I yeah, know. we haven't tasted Chimay on the pod, and yeah. I thought it would be great to have but, a Chimay. But you're right. It's used to be everywhere. Yeah. <coughs> Fascinating. Okay. Well, so check out Trends before we do our uh, trip out to, to Mount Angel. Uh, so, yeah, next podcast, uh, be looking for it. We'll be trekking out to the uh, Benedictine Monastery that's now brewing in, or in Mount Angel, Oregon. Uh, so... Uh, Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. I encourage you to rate us, review us, and subscribe to us all on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Please do that. <laughs> uh, you should also get in touch. If you'd like to just send a comment, uh, some feedback, a question, um, you can email Jeff at jeff at beervonablog.com. You can visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. And of course, you can go to the Beervana Blog and get educated, educated. We have some nice chatter going on there. Uh, People have started to post other stuff on there that is not, it's not just Jeff's show. And I get, I'm the Facebook to, page? Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to get a fair amount of data from there. I'll boot it up and someone's posted a cool link. So nice. Check it out. All right. Beervana blog Facebook page. Uh, Jeff blogs at Beervana blog, of course, and tweets at, at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeranomics. And yeah. um, that's what we got. All right. So, so um, we got a cheers. And now I've got three exceptional beers. You know, I'm going to go for the Seath. The Rochefort Seath. I figured you would. I'm going to go for the, I'm going for the West Mall, which we somehow drank all of. Did you drink all of that? <laughs> yeah, I poured a lot. <laughs> I didn't get that much. I started slowing down after. <laughs> <laughs> They're big beers. So. <laughs> all right. Santé. Uh, uh, Santé. Sorry. Uh, I cheers. I don't know what they say in uh, the Flemish Belgian region. I imagine they say Santé in the French, but. Okay. I, I think it's, 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 it's related to Prost. Prost it? Something like that. All right.
Cheers. It's been a while. Cheers. We're, Eng- we're, we're English speakers. Cheers. Yeah.